They say the Old Testament is loaded with Messianic prophecies. More than 500 verses refer to Messiah. You read those passages and you strain to find the Messiah others claim is just rather clearly there. Well, coming up on The Land and the Book, it's Messianic Prophecies Explained, a plain English look at some mind-blowing verses about Jesus, plus more questions from listeners, a powerful devotional, and everything you need to know about current events in the Middle East. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our travel guide is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a guy who has spent a lifetime studying and traveling in and around the Middle East. I'm his sidekick, John Geiger. And Charlie, you seem pretty energized today. John, I'm excited. Uh, There's so much happening in the Middle East. And besides that, it's just fun being back with you. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at current events for the week. Is Israel's government about to begin peace talks with the Palestinians? Or is the Israeli government about to dissolve? Wild rumors and reports seem to be swirling around discussions between Washington, Jerusalem, Ramallah, Amman, and even Moscow. Help us sort out fact from fiction in all these different reports. You know, John, it really is hard to determine what's fact and what's fiction at times. It does seem clear that the new Israeli administration has been trying to curry favor with President Biden and the Democratic Party. However, that support comes with some very significant strings attached. The U.S. is pressuring Israel to stop expanding settlements in the West Bank, to provide other concessions to the Palestinians, and eventually to re-enter negotiations on a two-state solution. President Biden met with King Abdullah of Jordan, and that was one of their topics of discussion as well. Abdullah is supportive, especially because he doesn't want Jordan to be viewed as the de facto Palestinian state in any possible two-state solution. He wants a state of Palestine carved out of the West Bank and the Gaza area. Naftali Bennett and his coalition partners in Israel are in a very difficult spot. Bennett has opposed a fully independent state of Palestine, and members of his own party have said they'll jettison the coalition if Israel officially halts expansion of Jewish settlements in the West Bank. But the left-wing members of the coalition, including the Ra'am Islamist Party, actively support just such a policy. And as if all that's not pressure enough, well, apparently Russia has decided to push back against Israel's attacks on Iranian forces in Syria by upgrading Syria's missile defense system to stop several missile attacks by Israel on targets in Syria. Now, what's unclear is if this move by Russia was intended to complicate the U.S.'s relationship with Israel or if it was actually done after being told our administration doesn't approve of Israel's attacks in Syria. If that's the case, it could be that the U.S. is allowing Russia to push against Israel to help in the negotiations with Iran on the nuclear agreement. Negotiations which, by the way, are currently at a standstill. Uh, The bottom line, though, John, in all this is that Israel's new government is caught between a rock and a hard place. They want to build closer relations with the Biden administration, but they're also very concerned about Iran's intentions in both Syria and Lebanon. And their broad coalition, well, it could potentially collapse over the issue of stopping construction in the settlements or entering negotiations on a two-state solution, which is exactly what the U.S., the Palestinians, and Jordan are pressing them to do. All that to say, the next few months, it could be very interesting. Mm. Well, it sounds like it. Water is a precious commodity in the Middle East, and that has been impacting countries as diverse as Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iran. How is water the common thread linking each of these countries? 
You know, water is the most precious commodity. In fact, the most precious resource in all the Middle East. It's far more valuable for life than oil or natural gas. And right now, Israel is the water giant with all of its desalination plants. But that also makes those plants a strategic target. In fact, Iran has tried to hack into the systems controlling Israel's water system. They were unsuccessful, and Israel has now partnered with a startup company using artificial intelligence to guard against any future cyber attacks. But in contrast with Israel's water abundance, the other countries are suffering severe water shortages. Earlier this month, Israel agreed to double the amount of water it supplies to Jordan through next May. It's a short-term solution, but it's one that Jordan desperately needed. Iran is also struggling with a water shortage, but they don't have a ready solution. They're experiencing riots. Uh, In fact, in the past several weeks, they've had some as people protest the lack of access to clean water. Sadly, the Iranian authorities responded by using live ammunition against the demonstrators, killing at least eight. Hmm. Uh, And in Lebanon, the UN Children's Fund warned the country's entire water supply could collapse in a month. Now, that might be overstated just slightly, but uh, we know that Lebanon has no money for infrastructure repairs, and a degrading of the power grid could potentially shut down pumps that supply water throughout the country. That would leave potentially 4 million Lebanese at risk of losing access to safe water. Israel and Jordan demonstrated how two countries can work together to help solve such a basic problem. Unfortunately, Iran and Hezbollah's influence on Lebanon won't allow them to make peace with Israel or work together. They'd rather have the people of Lebanon die of thirst or drink contaminated water than turn to the Jewish people for help. And that's just sad. You're listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. What you're listening to is an overview of current events, stories that have been unfolding in the Middle East region all week long. The only way for non-Muslims to reach the Temple Mount is by way of the Mugrabi Bridge. But an engineering report says the bridge is in danger of collapse and must be replaced or closed by September. Wow. How serious is this problem really, Charlie? And can it be repaired in the next month or so? Well, the problem is serious. And what makes it even more serious are the political and religious issues that have been keeping it from getting resolved. The current bridge was set up back in 2007 as a temporary solution after an earthen ramp collapsed in 2004. It was only supposed to remain for several months until a more permanent structure was built. But the religious conflict over who controls the area, Israel or the Muslim authorities, brought the project to a halt. In 2011, the city engineer issued an order to close the bridge due to safety concerns, but that order was never enforced. And then this past spring, 45 Orthodox Jews were trampled to death at Mount Moron when a large crowd pushed its way down a narrow passageway. And then just a few weeks later, a set of metal bleachers collapsed in a synagogue, killing two and injuring 184. Now, because of those two tragedies, another engineering firm was hired to look at the bridge up to the Temple Mount, which is built on metal scaffolding. And it's their report which said the bridge needed to be closed and or replaced by this September. Now, Could a new structure be constructed in a month? It might be possible if it became a top priority, but will it get done? Right now, I don't think it's likely. Muslims are upset over the number of Jews accessing the Temple Mount, so they're far less likely to agree to a change, especially if Israel's planning to build the new bridge. 
Something does need to be done, John, so let's just hope the changes can be made before still another tragedy happens that leads to more unnecessary deaths and injuries. Israel is about to become the first country in the world to test an oral COVID vaccine. But with the availability of COVID vaccines for the past seven months or so, what's the significance of still another vaccine, even one developed in amazing Israel? Well, vaccines have been available for at least seven months, and yet only 14% of the world's population is fully vaccinated. Part of the problem is price. Part relates to the complexity of producing and storing some of the vaccines, and part relates to the trained medical personnel that are needed to administer the current vaccines. Uh, That level of healthcare infrastructure and personnel is lacking in many third world countries. And unfortunately, that becomes a problem for all of us because left unchecked, the virus will continue to mutate and that produces still more strains that can then return to infect even those countries that have had access to the vaccine. Now, this oral vaccine from Israel could potentially be a game changer. It would allow a vaccine to be produced that could be stored at room temperature and given to people without doctors, nurses, or syringes. It would be as simple as swallowing a pill. Israel's beginning a clinical trial to determine the best dosage. That should take about six weeks. If it's successful, they hope to put the vaccine on an accelerated road to receive emergency use approval in countries with the greatest need. What also makes their vaccine unique is the fact that it targets three structural proteins in the virus rather than just the single spike protein targeted by current vaccines. Mm. Now, they believe this could help the oral vaccine be more resistant to future mutations. The battle against COVID is far from over. But hopefully this new oral vaccine from Israel will allow the rest of the world to beat back the pandemic before new strains can get a foothold. And John, that would benefit all of us. For sure. Well, this is segment one of four on The Land and the Book, looking at current events. Up next, a conversation about messianic prophecies explained how you can find Christ in the Old Testament. Segment three is questions and answers, questions that have come to us via email. And segment four is always a devotional. Charlie, you have a great way of riveting a passage of Scripture to a place in Israel. Where are we headed today? Well, we're going to be heading on a road down to Gaza uh, and looking at an expression, go take a hike, as we look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Sounds good. And as always, your email is welcome. Tell us how the program is impacting your life when you write to us at The Land and The Book at moody.edu. It's Messianic Prophecies Explained next. Most of us think of Jesus as a New Testament figure, and there's no question he's at the very heart of the New Testament. But Jesus is found throughout the Old Testament as well. Welcome again to The Land and the Book. My name is John Geiger, and I'm really intrigued with the conversation you and I are about to have on the matter of messianic prophecies. Now, don't let that term scare you off. If you stay listening, I promise you're going to be even more amazed at your Bible and at Jesus. First, though, this thought on sharing Yeshua with Jewish friends and neighbors. Can you really find Yeshua, our Messiah, in the pages of the Old Testament? Let's ask Dr. Michael Rydelnik of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. What do you say? 
Yeah, of course. And, you know, people will say, well, where do you see Jesus? He's just picked out some verses here and there. One of my favorite passages when we read the Gospels is then to go back to Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah 35 is really not talking about the first coming of the Messiah. It's depicting what it will be like in the Messianic kingdom when the Messiah is reigning on the throne over uh, the whole world from Jerusalem. But it talks about what it's like. And so when the king came in his first appearance, we got a little taste of kingdom life right here in the in the Gospels. And in Isaiah 35, it talks about that he's going to open the eyes of the blind, that he's going to make the lame walk once again. They'll leap like a deer. They will be excited and healed. And he is going to give us a, a little glimpse of that in his first appearance, because that's what it will be like in the Messianic kingdom. And so I always encourage people, read Isaiah 35 and then read the Gospels and see how Jesus healed, Mm. how he opened the eyes of the blind, how he made the lame walk once again, how he made the deaf to hear, how he opened the mouths of those who could not speak. And in that sense, he said, I'm the king. I'm the one that will do these things in the kingdom. And now you can know I've come and I've made my first appearance. And there's more in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy from Moody Publishers. You've probably heard someone mention Messianic prophecies, but just what are they? And how can average folks like us find Jesus in them? Well, let's get some help from Greg Savitt. Greg Savitt has worked with Jews for Jesus and Chosen People Ministries. And so this conversation about Messianic prophecies is going to be very, very helpful. Greg has also written, by the way, about his personal journey to faith in the book, From Tradition to Eternity. I loved it. Uh, Currently, Greg serves as director of Jewish evangelism for a ministry called Rock of Israel. We've talked on the phone, Greg, but uh, we've wanted to have you in our studio for a couple of years now. So it's great to finally connect in person, Greg Savitt. Well, shalom, John. This is a wonderful opportunity. And I was an unsaved Jewish person, and I was kind of interested in Jesus. And this one pastor gave me a book, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And I was a little confused through some of the book, but when I got to like the chapter on Messianic prophecy, I'm like, okay, that's my stuff. Yeah. And it said there were 330 Messianic prophecies, and Yeshua Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. But for those that are worried about those extra 30, when he comes in power and glory, he's going to knock out all 330. But <laughs> Psalm 2, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rules take counsel against their Lord, against the Messiah. And if you want to test this out, go to a party when you're talking with a bunch of people, say, what do you think about Jesus? And you'll see them depart. They'll disperse. And the name of anointed one, that is Hebrew for Mashiach, which comes from the Greek word Christ. Here's something that a lot of people never really know. Jesus never heard his name, Jesus. Hmm. There's no J in Hebrew, John. (laughs) It's Yeshua from the child to the cross. But verse six, it says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I'm not a betting person, but I think that's Jesus when he comes back in power and glory. It says, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Begotten doesn't mean just coming out of that person, but it's from the very nature of that person. Mm. So this son has always existed. And verse 12 is very interesting. It says, do homage to the son. 
that he will not become angry and you will not perish in his ways for the wrath may soon be kindled and how blessed are those who refuge in him. So let's just take a brief overview. There's one who's from the very essence of God. You must pay homage to the son and you must obey this person. I think if you're pretty logical and you read that, that you will have to come to the conclusion that that son is the son of God, Jesus. Messianic prophecies. That's the conversation today on The Land and the Book with our guest, Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. All right, Psalm 22 is said to be another messianic passage. We looked at Psalm 2. What do we need to see in Psalm 22, Greg? What's amazing is that Jesus in Matthew 27, 45, about three in the afternoon, he said, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were a scholar back then, like most Jewish people were, they learned the Bible orally, they would have said, where have I heard this before? And it comes from Psalm 22, 1, 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. So the apostles would have been brought to that knowing that Jesus brought them to the scripture. And we see in Psalm 22, verse 1 through 6, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by his people. And all through Jesus' life, he was scorned, he was rejected. The Sanhedrin rejected him, all the Pharisees. And verse 22, verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water. And when Jesus was pierced, mm. uh, the spear and the, and the lungs and the heart beating so hard, water and blood would come out of that. It says, my bones are in joint. The Mayo Clinic says the first thing that happens on a crucifixion is those shoulders would have popped out. Finally, it says, my heart has turned to wax. When you are dying of crucifixion, you cannot get the CO2, the carbon monoxide, out of your body. And Mayo Clinic made an analysis that most likely hearts would beat so fast that they would literally explode. And isn't it interesting? It says, my heart has turned like wax. Finally, I just want to say one thing. Verse 16, this is 450 years before crucifixion was invented yet. It says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. That is not even on the radar screen yet of how Romans will kill people. But they call it the crucifixion psalm. And I think it's so beautiful that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have they forsaken me? So that you would know to go to Psalm 22, verse 1. Greg, let me ask you, the, the disciples, whoever might have been there, most of them had fled. But any, any Jewish person brought up in the faith in that day, would they have likely connected what no. Jesus said? They certainly would have, would you say? I don't think they would have because in, in Gospels that said, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring remembrance. There's many times in the Gospels where Jesus say, I will be given over uh-huh. and three days later, my death and burial and resurrection. And they're like, huh? Pass the salt. I mean, they didn't get it at all. And I don't think it's so funny, John. Let me just one more thing and we'll move on. Yeah. It's when Jesus was with them 40 days and 40 nights, the disciples pouring out their ministry. In Acts 1.6, they said, oh, Rabbi, are you going to restore Israel? I mean, they don't get it. Yeah. He's not there to restore the king of Israel. He's there to set up messianic kingdom in people's hearts. 
We're talking with Greg Savitt today on The Land and the Book, looking at Messianic prophecies. Well, we got to come to Isaiah 53. That's the big one. Why do Jewish people typically claim this passage refers to Israel as a nation rather than Jesus? I've, I've heard that comment a lot. Well, what happened was that Rashi in 1100 AD, a famous rabbi, basically he was up against the wall. I mean, a lot of Christians were really pushing hard on Isaiah 53. He was like an animal cornered. He had to strike back. He said that meant Israel. But there's various problems with that, John. First of all, there's like eight rabbis who in the oral law, which is considered aspired, says Isaiah 53 is talking about the Messiah. He was pierced. He died for the iniquity of sins. And the second thing, Rashi says it's Israel. John, there's 41 personal pronouns in Isaiah 53. He, him, he, him. They're not talking about Israel. Finally, when has Israel ever been one that would die for the sins of the Gentile? Hmm. In 1990, they found a plaque that said, if the Gentiles pass this line, it's punishment by death. Meaning that if you're Gentile and you would pass a certain way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the authority and the permission to take that Gentile and kill them. Hmm. Also, even Jesus calls the Samaritan woman a Gentile dogs. I mean, this is not a great relationship between Gentiles and Jews. So I find it hard that Israel would die for the sins of the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people. Well, take us inside Isaiah 53, insights that point to Jesus as a messianic prophecy. John, if I have one shot with a Jewish person, I will share Isaiah 53. And I've been in Jewish missions for 24 years, and I always do this trick. I read Isaiah 53, the entire thing, and 100% of the time, the Jewish person says, I don't want to read from the Gospels. I don't read from this guy, Paul. I want to just deal with the Scriptures. In fact, one rabbi named Claude Montefiore says, the reason why Jewish people don't read Isaiah 53. By the way, they never read Isaiah 53 through the entire year in the temple at all. Isaiah 51, 52, whoops, let's read Isaiah 54. And Claude <laughs> Montefiore says, we don't read it because, spoiler alert, it sounds too much like Jesus. <laughs> now, to quote the great theologian Ronald Reagan, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it flies like a duck, it's a duck. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why I believe that no Jewish synagogue in the world reads Isaiah 53. All right, let me take you back to your conversation. You, you're sitting down with a Jewish friend. You have just read Isaiah 53. Uh, they're claiming that it's uh, New Testament. And then you reveal that it's Old Testament. I reveal What's... Old Testament, and I like to point out a couple scriptures. Uh, verse 5, and I like to say that crucifixion, wasn't even invented yet. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Verse 6, the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the Lord will to cause him to suffer and through the Lord make his life an offering from sin. Then I like to say, hold on to your hats. Watch this. It says in verse 10, it says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. But we got to understand something. Verse 8, this person's cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9, he has signed to a grave. This guy's dead. But it says he will see his offspring and prolong his days, 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Hmm. And in rabbinical idioms, that means resurrection. So we see the life, death, burial, and the resurrection. And you wonder why synagogues don't want us to see it. So how can listeners to the land and the book use these messianic prophecies in conversations they're having? Do you, in fact, recommend uh, sharing Isaiah 53 like that? And what I always say to them, I always appeal to their intelligence. I have a relationship with them. I'm pretending like I'm a Gentile here, okay? So these are for the Gentiles that are listening. Mrs. Steinberg, I was wondering if you'd read this text. I know you're Jewish. I know you can bring me far more revelation about it. I'm really trying to understand that. Could you read it to me and talk about it? Believe me, Jewish people, when you come to them and ask for their help, especially about their faith, they'll give it to you. And then when they read it, John, make sure your battles with the scriptures. Hmm. You could say, well, I understand what you're saying that, but do you see that Isaiah is saying something differently? And John, once you have the battle between the person and the text, that's huge because they're not arguing with you anymore. They are arguing what the text says. And now you have to say, Do you see what this text is saying? And that's a great way to witness to them. Well, great conversation today, Greg. There's more to uh, dig into, and I'd like to pick up the subject again on another broadcast. We'll certainly do that. Greg Savitt is Director of Jewish Evangelism for Rock of Israel, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Now, we've covered a lot of ground today. Maybe you'd like to hear it all again, process it, and maybe take notes that you could share with a friend. Easy to do that when you check out our podcast. It's at thelandandthebook.org thelandandthebook.org. You can always hear our program again there. Well, could I quickly share with you an email from Fred? He says, I listen to the Land and the Book podcast on my iPhone from the tiny island nation of Singapore and have been much blessed. I always look forward to listening to the podcast. Every segment is much anticipated. And I've also enjoyed your video clips from your trip to Israel. Love getting email from you. And if it's been a while since you've connected with us, why not send an email and do let us know where you listen, won't you? Here's how you connect the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer is back with a fresh set of Bible questions next on the land and the book. The Bible, prophecy, Israel. They're all fair game for questions that you can send to us here at The Land and the Book. And this third segment on the broadcast is where we cover them with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger saying welcome back. And you're going to love the variety of questions that have come into us, starting with this one from Scott. He says, Charlie, why do you think that Tel el-Haman, north of the Dead Sea, across from Jericho, is not Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, and I have two problems with that site, and they both relate to the biblical text. Uh, The first is that Lot and his family fled from Sodom, it says, to Zoar. Uh, Genesis 19.15 says the angel told him to flee when morning dawned, suggesting it was right near sunrise. And the angelic visitors took Lot outside the city and told him to escape to the mountains. Now, uh, it wouldn't be a problem for Tel el-Hamam, except the town to which they escaped was called Zoar. And in the Medaba map, uh, from a Byzantine church in Medaba, Jordan, Zoar was located in the southern third of the Dead Sea. Now, that's a distance of about 50 miles. Uh, even allowing a few hours before the sun to actually peek over the hills into the valley, it would be impossible for someone to travel that distance by foot. 
But if Sodom and the other cities were in the area now occupied in the southern third of the Dead Sea, well, the distance would have been only several miles, which is more doable, though they still would need to hurry, as the angel said. Uh, my second problem, though, with the northern site is the description of the judgment. Uh, Genesis 19 says that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Well, Tel el-Hammam is located directly across the Jordan Valley from Jericho. They're about 13 miles apart. If God sent a cataclysmic destruction that destroyed all the valley, then I would have expected Jericho to be destroyed as well, but no such destruction in the archaeological record has been found at Jericho. If the destruction happened like God says, and I believe it did, then that site just doesn't fit all the details of the account. But locating the five cities in the southern third of what's now the the Dead Sea does make sense. In fact, that's why I think in Genesis 13, Moses has to add a clarifying note about the region. He says, it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar, but this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Jericho was a beautiful place when Israel came into the land, but the region of Sodom and Gomorrah had been so dramatically changed that Moses has to add an explanatory note. Anyway, all those details are why I think Sodom and Gomorrah were in the southern area where the southern third of the Dead Sea now is. Lynn says, I'm so thankful for your program, and I always learn from it and enjoy it. I listen on the radio when I can, but also subscribe to the podcast in case I miss it. Which brings to mind our little plug here. If you have yet to check out that podcast, you're missing out. It's a great way to enjoy the program at your own convenience, your own schedule, and a way you can share us with your friends as well. Check out the podcast at thelandandthebook.org. Lynn's question. I saw a program about prophecy on TV, and they portrayed many religions as having schools that taught people to see things in visions or trances. It was said in the Old Testament these types of schools were also present in Israel. Got me thinking, what types of things did the groups of prophets actually learn in the days of Elijah, Elisha, and others? Was it mainly a study of the scriptures and prayer or something else? Yeah, and we're not actually told very much about the sons of the prophets who are mentioned there in First and Second Kings. Uh, They do appear to be a grouping of individuals who had experienced the calling of God on their lives, and they served as his appointed messengers. And it also appears that they were disciples of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and were called sons in the sense that they were followers of these recognized prophets of God. In 2 Kings 3 and 4, they're associated with specific towns, Bethel and Jericho and Gilgal. And my assumption is they focused on the scriptures that were then in existence, along with the prophetic messages being delivered by Elijah and Elisha. And it's also likely that they did share messages God gave them with the people of the land. But again, beyond the very basics, we really don't know much else. And that's why I tend to be skeptical of programs like the one you described. You know, they seem to read more into the scriptures than is actually found there. So you're wise to be cautious. John's email tells us that most Bible teachers teach that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a literal account and not a parable, in part because a name is given unlike other parables. But why is this account believed to be a literal teaching about hell when the primary point of the story is in Luke 16.31? If we follow such thinking with all other parables, shouldn't we expect to find treasure in every field? Or shouldn't we expect a tree to grow from a mustard seed? Thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, and I actually see two issues here, so let me deal with each one separately. The first is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, is it an actual account of two real individuals, or was Jesus telling a parable? Well, I think he was telling the story as a parable. You know, sometimes in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke introduces a parable by saying, 
and he told them a parable, or, and he began telling this parable. But Luke doesn't introduce every parable of Jesus this way. He also uses another expression. In Greek, it's the phrase anthropos tis. Uh, a good literal translation would be a certain man. Uh, Jesus used it to introduce the parables of the Good Samaritan, of the prodigal son, the unrighteous steward, the parable of the ten minas, and the parable of the, of the tenants and the landowners. And that's what Jesus uses to introduce the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So I think it is a parable. But that leads to the second issue. If the account of the rich man and Lazarus was a parable, does it also follow that his description of events following death in the story have no basis in reality? Here I believe the answer is no. If you look at all Jesus' other parables, they made sense to the audience because each story was grounded in reality. Someone could discover a treasure in a field because people did hide their wealth in this way. Farmers did sow seed by scattering it with some falling on different kinds of soil. In fact, I can't think of a parable that doesn't have that ring of reality in it. So while the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable, I don't believe Jesus would include details that he knew to be untrue. Both the righteous and the wicked have a conscious existence after death, which we know from other parts of the scripture. So the story has a basis in what really happens after death. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, your weekly flyover of the Middle East with this section here that we devote to your questions. And uh, this one about Ephesians 6, verse 14. What does the belt of truth in this verse refer to? In other words, what is this truth? Yeah, and the Greek word there can be translated as truth or truthfulness. And in this particular case, I think Paul has the idea of truthfulness. That is, one of our key defenses against Satan's attacks on us is to make sure we live lives characterized by truthfulness, honesty, and integrity. The focus is on conduct, how we live, and not just on what we believe, though I think that's also important. Paul's using the image of a Roman soldier's armor, but I think there's another good picture of this image that's found in Isaiah 11.5, where Isaiah pictures the Messiah, and he writes, Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The picture is of the Messiah being faithful and righteous in all he does, and I think Paul is picturing something similar in Ephesians 6, though comparing it, obviously, to the belt worn by a Roman soldier. But in short, living a life of integrity and truthfulness, rather than duplicity or hypocrisy, will help protect us from Satan's attacks. Hal says, I've been studying the three prophetic passages Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, Mark 17, and Luke 21. But then I discovered that Luke 17, 22 through 37, though not included as part of the message in Luke 21, seemed to line up with the other three passages. So here's the question. Did Jesus have two prophetic discourses or did Luke, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, just put that section of Jesus' message in a different place? Well, and I do believe the gospel writers arranged material under God's direction to present a portrait of Jesus to a specific audience. You know, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, Mark to a Roman audience, Luke to a Greek audience, John to the whole world. So as a result, at times they did choose to put things not in strict chronological order. I don't have a problem with events being out of order chronologically because we do the same thing all the time when we communicate. You know, we can start telling a story, and in the middle, we pause to provide relevant details from some other situation that might have occurred at a different time or place. Well, in those instances, we switch from chronological order to provide a more logical sequence to help the listener or reader understand. But a second reality we don't often consider is the fact that Jesus almost certainly spoke the same message on multiple occasions. Much like a circuit-riding preacher, he would have delivered the same message at different times to a different audience. 
without radio or television or newspapers. His message had to be repeated so different groups of people around the country could all hear it. Uh, one illustration of this is the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's found in Matthew 5 to 7, but in Luke 6, it's called the Sermon not on the Mount, but on the Plain. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount apparently took place before Matthew was called as a disciple, while the Sermon on the Plain took place after Jesus had appointed the 12 disciples, including Matthew, as apostles. So the two messages don't align exactly because they were actually separate messages delivered on two different occasions. And I think that same thing is happening in those accounts in Luke on the future events. Uh, Jesus must have given that message on more than one occasion, and Luke's recording those two different times. One last question from Sue, who says, I heard you mention an organization called CAMRA. I tried to access it, but was unable. Can you help me here? Yeah, the group's actually called the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis. That's how they get the acronym CAMRA. But you can find them this way, www.camera.org. They do a good job of calling out inaccuracies and biases in media coverage of Israel and the Middle East. And their site is worth checking out. All right, that's camera.org. Well, our website is thelandandthebook.org, where you can hear today's program again. But don't go away. We're not done. Charlie's devotional is next, right here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Earlier in the summer, my wife and I took a trip out to North Carolina, and one of the coolest things we did was to take a couple of hikes. Uh, one day, I went way, way, way uh, on a winding, snaking trail that eventually tripped me, the roots of these trees, and I wasn't paying attention. The truth is, I was staring at some of the pictures I'd already taken. But that confession aside, a hike is good for the soul, as we're about to discover in Charlie Dyer's devotional up next. Right now, a Holy Land experience, this perspective, this view of the Holy Land from somebody who traveled there and now shares this with us. My name is David Woodall. My trip to Israel has given me a different geographical perspective on the text of the Bible. You see, it's one thing to learn geography from an atlas, but it's another thing to experience the visual impact of that geography in the hills, the valleys, and the deserts of the land of the Bible. For example, as I looked over the vast desert of Judea, I connected more to the ministry of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, or to Jesus being tempted in the desert, Matthew chapter 4. Luke 10 records the parable of the Good Samaritan, which tells of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when you see that area, you get a better grasp of the potential dangers of making a trip in that region. All of this is important because the Bible describes events that happened in this geographical context. We need to live in their world before we can draw out the significance of that text for us today. And when we do that, we develop a whole new and, I think, more accurate perspective on the Bible. Hi, my name is Kevin Zuber. I was on the trip to the Holy Land, and the things that really impressed themselves upon me were the scale of the Holy Land. Some places were bigger than I thought. Some places were smaller than I thought. But what really helped me was looking around and seeing the 360-degree angle of things, standing on the Mount of the Beatitudes and seeing the Sea of Galilee in the background, standing in the synagogue at Capernaum and understanding the scale of that uh, intimate setting where Jesus taught, standing on the Mount of Olives and looking at the massive 
Temple Mount just across the Kidron Valley. These are the things that impress themselves upon me and really make a difference now as I read the Bible. I can understand and perceive the scale of the Holy Land, the place where Jesus actually walked. Thanks so much for that Holy Land experience. Well, my experience in North Carolina this summer, as I mentioned to you before, was absolutely breathtaking. To travel these winding trails, to mind your steps over the roots of these exposed tree roots, and and snake your way up to the very top to look down at a waterfall was a very rewarding panorama. But much more rewarding than any kind of a physical view or photo we might take is an encounter like Philip had. But that's getting ahead of the story. Here's Charlie Dyer with today's devotional. Why don't you take a hike? If someone said that to you, it probably means they're irritated with you and want you to leave. But in our study today, the phrase has an entirely different meaning and leads to a special encounter orchestrated by God. To understand what I mean, let's go on a hike with Philip, one of the original seven deacons of the church. In Acts 8, Philip was involved in an amazing ministry in the region of Samaria. The chapter contains an action-packed account of God at work. Luke describes multitudes with one accord giving attention as Philip preached, healed, and cast out demons. So imagine Philip's amazement when, in the middle of that revival, God sends an angel to announce, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And lest Philip think he's being sent on a busy superhighway, the angel hastens to add, This is a desert road. The word he uses pictures a spot that's isolated and deserted. He's not so much describing a place of sparse vegetation as he is a place of sparse population. Philip leaves Samaria and heads toward the low foothills to the southwest of Jerusalem. Abandon the work God just began and take a hike on a lonely stretch of road leading down from Jerusalem toward Gaza. The command didn't sound promising. Actually, it seemed more like an interruption. But Philip obeyed and headed toward one of the most remarkable one-on-one Bible studies in history. Somewhere along that lonely highway, perhaps near the valley where David fought Goliath, Philip came across a chariot sitting by the side of the road, and the man inside was reading from the book of Isaiah. The scene must have been intriguing. The, The man was an African court official of Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. The chariot identified him as a man of wealth, power, and prestige, but The text in his hand showed him to be a God-fearer who, though a Gentile, had come to Jerusalem to worship. It's possible he was a proselyte to Judaism, a Gentile who came to accept the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his own. As Philip ran toward the chariot, he heard the official reading aloud from the scroll, so he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? The official didn't and invited Philip into his chariot to explain the meaning of the passage. And what was he reading? In our Bibles, the passage is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? While it's possible the official was reading a Hebrew copy of Isaiah, it's more likely he was reading a Greek translation. The passage, as it appears in the book of Acts, is almost a word-for-word quotation of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Greek was the common language of commerce and culture, and in Acts 6, Philip had already been identified as one of the Grecian Jews when he was selected to be one of the seven deacons. God sent a Jewish believer who knew Greek 
to explain one of the most remarkable prophecies of the Bible to a God-fearing Gentile who could read the words of the text, but who didn't understand its meaning. God brought the ideal teacher to help this one who was an honest seeker after the truth. The official seemed to understand the importance of the passage, but he couldn't identify the person to whom it pointed. Please tell me, he asked, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Philip knew the answer, and that's where he started his amazing Bible study. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was Jesus. He is the one who died for the sins of others, who was pierced through for our transgressions. He's the one crucified with wicked men and who yet ended up in the tomb of a rich man in his death. And though crucified, he's the one who would be allotted a portion with the great through his resurrection from the dead. Philip began with Isaiah 53, but Acts 8 suggests he went from this passage to others in the scripture that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah who died for the sins of the world, who rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and who's coming again. Philip must also have taught this God-fearing Ethiopian the importance of accepting Jesus personally as his Savior, of turning to him and becoming one of his disciples. Perhaps Philip even shared the final words of Jesus to his earthly followers. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I say this because of the man's response to Philip. And when they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's time for us to say goodbye to Philip and his royal official as the two of them head down to the water for the baptismal service. But what have we learned from this amazing encounter? I'd like to suggest two important truths. First, if you're a follower of Christ, don't get upset if God seems to disrupt your plans. He might just have a divine appointment for you on what otherwise might look like an unnecessary journey down a deserted road. Second, if you're still searching for God, realize that he cares for everyone who genuinely seeks to know him. God sent Philip from a thriving ministry in Samaria to rendezvous with this one man who was searching for the truth. Ask God to bring someone into your life who can share with you the truth about his son. The book of Hebrews says God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just ask this court official from Ethiopia. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That from Hebrews 11.6, a verse that my dad helped me memorize years ago. Thanks, Dad, for encouraging me to memorize that great verse. And Charlie, thank you for that wonderful devotional. Why don't you take a hike? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You can hear it all again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. And why don't you do that? Maybe share the link with a friend so they can hear it as a podcast or stream it online at thelandandthebook.org. Your email, it's welcome. Love to hear your thoughts, your ideas. Email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. .edu. I want to thank our team. That's Dan Anderson, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. See you back next week for The Land of the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.